What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're in the midst of a historic week, one that has swerved maniacally from the healing of the George Floyd guilty charges against his murderer to the murder of yet another African-American teenager, 16-year-old Makia Bryant, by the police. Both daughters and sons feel unsafe. What's, un- what's important to us now is that Black author voices are heard more than ever. Today, we speak with Pamela N. Harris, who wrote a new YA novel, When You Look Like Us. It's a taut, intense suspense story, and one that's freighted with meaning. Welcome, Pamela. It's a great debut. Oh, thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for having me, Diane. It's an honor to talk to you. Well, we are uh, privileged to talk to you. It's been an emotional roller coaster this week. I know that you posted mm-hmm. that um, you talked about the ambivalence of self-promotion during such a tumultuous week. What's your state of mind yeah. cur- currently and your reflections currently? I will say, I mean, this whole year, I mean, I thought, you know, we all know that 2020 was a year, but I, you know, debuted my first novel in January and the day right after my novel came out, it was the insurrection at the Capitol. So, you know, this Mm. whole experience to me has been, um, you know, it's a monumental moment for myself, but then I know that, you know, my community and um, many others like me and even personally myself, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of joy. And it's trying to find that balance of, you know, trying to be proud and happy for my own accomplishments, but also being respectful for, you know, the larger issues at hand. And so it's kind of like, you know, tap dancing that fine line of, of what do I do in this moment? So I, I'm constantly feeling like I'm on eggshells, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I, yeah. I, I reiterate again um, that even showing up as an African-American voice is a political yeah. act. It's an important political act. And that you are visible, that you are heard at this point, it really counts. And it counts more than um, the debut of a, of a great YA novel. I enjoyed it immensely. Let's give our listeners a little background. Pamela N. Harris was born and somewhat raised in Newport News, Virginia, also affectionately known as Bad News. A former school counselor by day, she received her BA in English and a master's in school counseling at Old Dominion University. Her MFA in creative writing at Fairleigh Dickinson University and a PhD in counselor education and supervision at William and Mary. When she isn't writing, Pam is rewatching Leonardo DiCaprio movies, playing with her two kiddos, and pretending to enjoy exercising. When You Look Like Us is her debut novel. You live in Williamsburg, Virginia. Pamela, tell me. You know, this is a place that I envision still flying the Confederate flags. Um, what's it like right now in Williamsburg, Virginia? 
That's so interesting that you said that because I um, was driving back from an appointment yesterday and I had to be on the interstate. So I was driving back home and I saw like this huge Confederate flag just waving freely like over the cars. And um, for a while, because I've grown up in this area, I almost felt desensitized to it, but I've been hyper aware over the past couple of years. And so seeing that and seeing it kind of flying so freely and it was huge, you know, I, I, I felt myself clutching the steering wheel um, so it's, and yeah, it, it's been an interesting time for me. It's something that I'm used to, but I feel like I'm tired of just kind of being like, well, this is okay. This is the way things are. Um, and I, I think like a lot of us are seeing that some things shouldn't be the way that things should be anymore. You know, I, I feel like more empowered to have a voice about things that are bothering me because growing up, I've kind of like become accustomed to like, well, that's just how things are. This is how people perceive me. I just have to try harder to to prove myself and to show that um, I'm different than what their expectations are. But there comes a point where I'm just tired and I'm frustrated. And I I think a lot of that has to do with me now being a mother myself and Mm -hmm. um, trying to make this world better for my children and better for my young readers too as well, you know. Absolutely. Uh, And we are swerving back and forth. I think, um, you know, we get the relief or, you know, being moved to tears um, from the verdict from Mm -hmm. the from the from the George Floyd uh, vindication and moved to tears. Breaking that down is is because you really don't expect to be supported by the system. And then suddenly the system acknowledges the value of a life. It's really yeah, it's re- it's really emotional. It's really powerful, and then you see the Confederate flag, and you you realize I know. That there's just a whole bunch of people out there that want to go way way back into something really ugly, and we all know what it means. So I, I think that you know, if anything, you you've got to feel more compelled um, to keep your to keep your writing alive. When you talk about being raised um, in bad news, Virginia, partially raised, uh, what did that mean? I felt like I was supposed to know what that means. I kind of do know what that means, but from 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 the author's from the author's view, and also because I'm going to dive into the character next, um, wh- what does it mean to be partially raised? Yes. So my dad was military. Um, and so I did a lot of, you know, my mom and I, we would go to the different bases with him. Um, I've lived in three different areas in California. We lived in um, New Jersey, North Carolina. I was born in Newport News, but um, whenever my dad had any kind of, um, if he had to be deployed or if he had, he was stationed overseas, instead of like um, us joining him, my mom felt, you know, safer to kind of go back to our larger family at hand and to come back to Newport News. So it would be something along the lines of we will be gone for two years, come back to my home base, gone for two years, come back to my home base. And so it was pretty much like that until I was about 13 or 14 when my dad got out of the military. And then from then on throughout high school, uh, I spent my whole high school years in Newport News as well and, and graduated from a, a Newport News high school. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive what happened after that, Dr. Pamela Harris. Yes. <laughs> um, Pamela and Harris. So, so yeah. Pam, I mean, um, 
You know, then I wonder too, you know, the the point that you're talking about, age 13, it's so pivotal, right? There, so much can go mm-hmm. either either way in adolescence. Is that what drew you to write Jason Murphy, Jay, the character, the protagonist in the book? He's he's in high school, his sister Nick's in high school. Is that why you chose YA to have an impact on kids at this age? Absolutely. I remember going through um, adolescence myself and it was, I couldn't put the words to how I was feeling. Like I was angry, but I couldn't figure out why I was angry. I was sad, but I didn't understand why I was sad. But then of course I had some happy moments, but that time period was so pivotal for me because I I know right around when I was 13, my dad was transitioning out of military life. Um, I had lost one of my grandmothers. Um, A lot was going on with me. And I remember I was called into an office to speak to a lady at school. And I'm like, who is this? Why is this lady in my business? This was like my third school that I went to in eighth grade because of all the transitions and moving. And I found out later on that she was my school counselor. And she had noticed like a change um, in my grades because I was always an honor student. Um, But she had realized that, you know, since I've kind of transitioned to this third school, that obviously there must be something going on with me because I wasn't performing the way that I used to. And um, she really looked out for me. She let me come in to talk with her from time to time. She helped me get on track as to considering, you know, these advanced classes I can take in high school. She asked me about my goals and dreams. And when I went on to high school, I found a lot of that mentorship, too, from a lot of my African-American teachers as well. And I just remember how that made me feel. As, you know, growing up at that time period, because I was first generation, um, a first generation college student. So even though my parents were, you know, super supportive, like my mom would stay up late at night, you know, if I was panicking about a project, she would try to help me get it done. And, you know, she would go to the school after hours if I freaked out because I left a textbook in my locker and she would get the janitor to let her in so she can get that textbook for me. So they were uh-huh. super supportive about, you know, making sure that I reached my dreams, but they also didn't know what they didn't know because they never went to college themselves. So I remember that that time period was so poignant to me. And I had these individuals that really guided me and supported me to kind of figuring out my voice and my identity. And so, you know, that's how my two loves came into place. My, you know, my love of counseling as well as my love of um, that age group, um, you know, really feeling that understanding of them trying to fit in and belong because I got to, you know, work with that age group too as a school counselor. And I know some of the comments they will always tell me is that they wanted to see themselves more in books. They wanted to know more about, you know, people, other people that had experiences like them. And when I was writing as a school counselor, admittedly, I was writing a lot of um, characters that were white because those were the stories that I read about when I was growing up. You know, I read my Beverly Clearies and my Judy Blooms, um, even V.C. Andrews, you know, so I just assume like, well, my stories don't really matter. So this is obviously what readers want to read. So I'm going to make all my characters white. And the only times I wrote about black characters were when I was uh, writing with my cousins. Like, you know, we would spend the night over each other's house and we would all have our notebooks and jot down stories. And it was truly some of the most fun I ever had writing because I was, you know, writing freely. I was writing about the characters I wanted to write as opposed to, you know, who I thought people wanted me to write about. Um, And so I just kind of had to find a way to acknowledge that those students and myself really needed to see, you know, those characters and those neighborhoods featured in stories. And as Mm -hmm. soon as I had that breakthrough, I would say, you know, the traction of my, my writing career really began. 
Because you you came home to self, you became, um, you acknowledged who you were and um, offered yourself in the characters that you created. Your your book is dedicated, I'll read it, um, because I was, I found it moving. For my parents, who never had to remind me to make it home before the streetlights came on, I was already inside dreaming with a notebook and pen. And I wonder yes. now, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's a beautiful image. Um, and I, you know, just as an aside, what I do after the show is I, I, I get a hold of a book like yours, um, like JL's. Um, you know, I, I get these books and I make sure that they're installed in the library um, in a, in a school, the secondary school here um, for it, it's primarily serves um, African-American kids because it's an underserved community. Um, and I, I, I just, for the point that you're making, it's the role models are so important to have the black adolescent who's making choices, who's got a lot of obstacles, who's got all kinds of stuff coming at them and who has a lot of potential. And, you know, you're, you're talking about counselors kind of identifying that potential, but lots of times it gets wasted. Um, Jay, who mm-hmm. I, I adored, um, has a character. He, 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 okay, so you, let's get to the, the first point. You wrote in a male voice. Um, and I wondered, yes. you know, how did you come to that? How did you come to that decision? To me, um, I don't know what it is, but naturally when I'm, you know, starting a story, when I'm thinking of a story idea, I, I guess it's the male voice that kind of gravitates to me first. And I've always wondered why, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of strong, powerful women that I love and respect in my family. And I'm, I'm the only child, but I spent a lot of um, my childhood with my cousins who wrote like my sister's. My aunt was like my second mother. My grandmother was like another mother. And of course, I had my own amazing mother. So I had all these strong influences, but I I was even reflecting myself a while ago. I'm like, well, what is it about the male voice that really resonates with me? And Mm -hmm. I figured it out because when I was a school counselor, those were the students that connected with me first. You know, it was something about, I'm not sure what it was, but my male students were always the ones that um, wanted to build that rapport first and also kind of show their vulnerability to me. Um, more so than my female students. And then it was pretty much the male students that would encourage the female students to be like, you have to go talk to Miss Harris. I was Miss Harris at that time. Like, she's mm-hmm. amazing. She's awesome. She listens to you. She really helps. And it was like my male students were like my biggest cheerleaders, basically, because um, they a- allowed me to, you know, really get into their heads, basically. They opened up to me. And I think it was because um, b- being surrounded by them as students, I kind of like understood their their cadence. I understood their motivations. I understood what their desires were and, you know, some things that stood in their way. And I, ever since then, I think I've been more naturally drawn to speak from their perspective. I, I do have some stuff coming out with females too, but just to oh, me, good. it's always easier. Yeah. To tap into that male voice. <laughs> well, I, I wondered if, um, because I, I think you, uh, you did a service here because you, you got Jay in a place where he was hardened. His, his mom went back, went to prison. Um, he lost his mm-hmm. dad. Um, these are not spoiler alerts because this is, this is given as background at the opening of um, When You Look Like Us. And I, I really, you know, felt the hardening. I felt the 
cooling of of his soul that he he became uh you know he talks about the old Jay and the new Jay and the old Jay um, was really tender and open and wounded eventually. And so mm-hmm. closed up, like cl- closed up, shut down. And then it's what you're identifying here, this opening up and how the disappearance of his sister requires that he actually become like attuned again. I wonder if you, I wonder if you'd characterize yourself by writing this way or about this subject, you know, kind of like a counselor at large. You're, you are still a counselor, but you're talking to a bigger yeah. audience. <laughs> Right. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, I, I I think that Jay was just such an embodiment of a lot of the, you know, especially my black male students that I work with. And I will say there were even traces of myself in it um, mm-hmm. because of the fact, like, especially when um, I went to high school, um, you know, after my dad left the military, we did end up in public housing in a community that's very much like the one that I described in, in Jay's. Um, you know, for his neighborhood, that's pretty much designed after what my high school experience was. And I think because I've had a kind of slice of the other life of like, um, you know, being on these military bases and feeling really valued to a degree. And then when people finding out where my address is now, kind of looking at me differently um, to the point where I know like I got scholarships and one of my scholarships were based on, you know, for underserved youth or something along those lines. And I was so ashamed I was so embarrassed that I got that scholarship that I asked my, my parents to not show up to the scholarship, um, you know, this big awards assuming they were having at the school because I didn't want to show up. So my goal was to not go there at all because I didn't want the rest of the school to know about it because I was embarrassed. And mm-hmm. I remember that feeling and, and I remember thinking that this is must, must be what Jay is experiencing too at that time because of the fact that he had to be transplanted into this neighborhood and it's one of those things where I didn't realize how important and how loved and how amazing that community was until I had some space away from it because it, it made me the person I am today, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of shame in poverty, right? You you feel like I'm supposed yes. to... I'm, I'm supposed to have, I'm supposed to be, my family is supposed to have. And, and it's, it's, it's something um, that keeps you in its grips, I think, for, for a long, long time. And the community that you write Jay and his sister Nick and his, their grandmother Mimi into is called the Ducks, which D-U-C-T-S. Mm-hmm. And I always thought to myself, it's like the events through which things pass, but like nothing really is there like a sort of, like a big empty uh, duct, you know, like I, that's how I, and I thought to myself, I this love is, that, Diane. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was such a huge metaphor for me. I was like, it's not really a place that you go, right? It's, it, and then I think what you did, um, we're going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, I think we have to look at what you really did after that is you broke down a lot of stereotypes. I mean, hardcore stereotypes. And that's a big thing to dismantle. The drug lord Javon, the druggy pooch. Um, these are characterizations that even your African-American protagonists were looking at in a certain way. Why do we do it? How do we stop doing it? We're going to find out when we come back on Dropping In with Pamela and Harris. (music) 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Hey, everyone. So we're back. We're here with Pamela Ann Harris, and we're talking about her great YA novel, When You Look Like Us. And we all know what When You Look Like Us means. It's freighted with meaning at this point when we're talking about the criminal justice system and um, abuses. Uh, I think that When You Look Like Us, it's something that, it speaks volumes. So, uh, Pam, thanks so much for this for this great debut novel, and also for bringing out some real raw uh, stereotypes that are just embedded in us so deeply. Let's talk through some of them. You've got Javon; he's the yes. neighborhood uh, drug lord. Okay, and then you've got Pooch; he's the druggie. And then you've got Riley, and she's the daughter of the preacher. How do you start to break down and access these characters? Oh, great question. Um, I will say, I think um, writing these characters, because I think when I, when, when I was thinking them up, when I was thinking them up too alongside with my editors, a lot of times I was looking at them on the surface. I was thinking stereotypically, okay, you know, what does this mean to be like the neighborhood Betty, the neighborhood druggie, to be the preacher's daughter? But I also thought it was just as important to kind of um, break down and to see layers of those characters and not to just be a stereotype because that's a responsibility that I feel too as a black author writing about black characters. Like I want to make sure that, you know, readers see that, you know, the black race isn't monolithic, basically. So even though on the paper, you know, these characters may come across one way, I wanted to really make sure that um, the readers were able to peel them apart at certain points. Um, I think, too, that was a learning experience for myself, you know, you know, going back to the shame that I felt being in that community because I was so used to um, living on military bases. Um, I had to realize myself that, there were certain ways that I thought about people that belonged there. And I had to look in the mirror as to, you know, be like, well, I'm here too. <laughs> so, you know, what is mm-hmm. that, you know, what does that say about me? Like, I, I know my history. I know my parents' history. I know everything that they fought and did for me to keep a roof over my head. Um, so there has to be different reasons why, you know, we end up in the system, why we end up in public housing. Um, and I, I think, again, I, and I will say even learning to become a counselor myself and going to the graduate program, um, we had to engage in a lot of self-reflection 
And that, that's how I feel like the whole counseling process as well as writing is very similar to me because um, they're almost um, mirrors in a way because I'm really looking in the mirror and really reflecting on what do I mean by the words that I'm putting on the paper. And I'm also doing that in my role as a counselor too and even educating future counselors now. Like I'm always engaging in self-reflection and encouraging others to do that too, especially because I'm really pushing for all the counselors that I train to be culturally responsive. So being aware of their biases, um, what does that mean? Like, um, there's an activity that I would do with my students where I would take, you know, back when we could actually be in physical classrooms, mm. I would have these large chart papers across the room, and I would have some kind of group um, above that chart paper. It would be African-Americans. It would be Republicans. It would be Muslims. So just different groups. And then um, they would have to go around, and I would give them um, 30 seconds to think of every single thing that they've ever heard about that group, stereotype or not. Mm-hmm. And um, so we would do that uh, round robin, and then afterwards we would do a gallery walk and look at some of these comments. And a lot of it was negative, disparaging, because um, these are the stories and messages that we received growing up or maybe we received through the media. And mm-hmm. um, our goal as counselors, and it's, it's me as a writer right now, I'm like trying to think of ways to dismantle it, to dismantle that first um, that first thought, that first image that you have when you think of a certain individual. Um and so I really wanted to make sure I had the opportunity to do that and, and make them more beyond than what that title was of, like, you know, the neighborhood drug lord, the neighborhood, <laughs> the neighborhood druggie. I wanted mm-hmm. them to kind of see, like, well, maybe there's a backstory as to why they ended up the way that they were, basically. And I think that, um, you know, I love what you said about the mirroring of counseling and writing because both times you're looking through the layers, right? Because if you're counseling, you're looking for that nugget, you're looking for that potential, you're looking for that spark that's still alive inside the cold kid, you know, that's gotten hardened. And I think, okay, Mm -hmm. this is, but this is not in the writing part, you know, it's not a fictional process. We have only to look at Jay-Z to realize the neighborhood drug kingpin can become something else, you know? So, Absolutely. you know, unless, and I, I wondered, you know, when you talk about, you know, being a product of, of you know, the neighborhood, the docks, you know, the wards, or there's, is, you know, what if you don't have a Mimi. What a grandmother who's looking after you when your when your parents depart for one reason or another, and it's sad why they depart. And you start to look at yourself in a stereotypical way. I'm just a girl mm-hmm. of a, a broken home. My mom's in jail. My dad's dead. You start to label yourself in a way that's so self defeating. What What do you do? Yes. I mean, you know, what do you do? Where do you go if you don't? have that Mimi and is it still alive and well is it getting better for girls and boys how do you look at it now that's a great question um I will say I think a lot of it is when other people are manifesting or perceiving you to be a certain way sometimes you um live up to that expectation um so, for example, I'm even thinking about, you know, for me, um, there were two instances, you know, both of the times I was under 12. I think one time I was like 10 or 11 and there was this, you know, corner store that my cousins and I, whenever I visited them, would go to. And we would get our little uh, 25 snack cakes and chips, but we were there all the time to the point where the, you know, cashiers were, you know, knew our family. And I started noticing that he always followed me and my cousins when we were in the store. 
You know, he was an older white man. And um, I'm always a curious, I've always been very curious, which is probably why I'm a writer now and, and maybe even a counselor to a degree. You know, my parents would give me a notebook just to jot down all the questions I had in the day because I was just, <laughs> I guess I irritated them to no end with all my questioning. And so mm-hmm. I picked up on it. I could have been more than 10. And I, I remember asking him, I'm like, oh, wh- why are you following us? And he was just so stunned that this, you know, little black 10-year-old would ask him that question that he um, took it as disrespect. And so I remember um, later on when my aunt went to the store, he complained about me just for asking that question to say, you know, like that niece of yours, she has a bad mouth, you know, she's disrespectful just for asking a question that I feel like even right now deserved to be asked because I had given him no kind of indication that, you know, I was going to steal from the store. And um, a second incident, um, I remember even going to a costume, a Halloween costume shop right around Halloween once again with my cousins and I saved up my money. I had, I remember I had $80 in my pocket because I loved Halloween and I wanted to find something really cool to wear that year. And the store owner came out and kicked us out the store and I had, I had money to spend. And mm-hmm. so I'm sitting here thinking I'm very young. I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm supposed to be bad. These are what these messages, these people are telling me that there's something about me being who I am. That's telling me that they're assuming that I'm supposed to still so I remember one time, I'm like, well, if this is expected, I'm going to still look this bag of chips. Everyone, mm-hmm. is, everyone is telling me that this is what they're expecting of me. And so I end up doing the same thing. And this is like, I had great role models in my life. Like I said, I, there were so many um, strong women figures. And even some of the men in my life were just extraordinary. But since I was receiving those messages outside of the house, it was one of those things that I felt like I had to live up to that because this is what they're thinking of me. So I guess I'm supposed to be doing it. So mm-hmm. what I would, you know, what I'm trying to be very cognizant of with my own children is, you know, I can't protect them from the stereotypes that others outside of my house is going to have about them, but I want to have those conversations to prepare them, um, to let them know what to expect. But then also when I'm speaking with my white students, um, you know, white colleagues, uh, you know, we've been on panels, I've been on panels for social justice and one of my colleagues said it best, who's a black female, and I've been repeating this now is I want you you know, my white allies, my white coworkers, my white students to teach your kids not to be afraid of mine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it, it really needs to begin, basically, is, um, you know, I'm going to have those conversations with my children about, you know, even though I can love you, even though I can support you, you're not going to I'm not going to always be around you. And there's going to be people that are going to think these things about you. So what could we do? What could we do mm-hmm. to persist? And, you know, and the more and more I can, like, kind of spread that seed across to, to anyone that I interact with that don't look like me, um, mm-hmm. I'm, that I hope that they can, like, spread those messages within their household, you know, seed by seed, I think we can start to make a difference, if that makes sense at all. Totally. I mean, I think there's those of us who wonder, you know, as allies, wanting to be allies anyway, um, you know, what what can we do? And I think the the simple shift that you're talking about in terms of don't place the expectation of your biases on someone who is a person of color. So I think yes. it's such a, a powerful thing that you're talking about. If you feel that, you, you know, the eyes following you, the person following you, their expectation of like, you know, you're going to steal. And you think to yourself, well, I guess I might as well. I mean, it's so powerful. And it's not up to the person who's being, you know, gazed at to dismantle the whole thing. It's two part. And it's part of the responsibility of the ally to, yeah, you know, teach our kids, look, if you 
you know, feel that you have fear, okay, take a look at that fear instead of foisting it off on somebody else because I'm really sure yes. that a lot of these stereotypes are all just coping mechanisms for dealing with fear. That unless we think about the other as a bad person, then how do we justify our fear, right? And Absolutely. I think so it's going inward to say, okay, where's the fear coming from? It's not coming from my life. I can tell you that. I've never had unpleasant interactions with people of color. It comes, it's intergenerational, you know? So, yep. where's, so where's it coming from and, and taking that apart? Uh, because, okay, back to Jay now, he's got the coping mechanism too. He, he's got to have the cool girl girlfriend, so-called, in the school because he's like afraid of his emotions, right? If he gets involved with Riley, like then he's afraid. Um, But it's really hard to take that apart, Pam, unless you have real good reasons. And I think you're giving us like real good reasons. When you came to these, when you came to these realizations um, and you created this arc and these transitions in in the story with your characters growing this way, do you, do you think that this is hopeful? Do you think it's realistic? Have you seen it with your own eyes? Oh, I love that question. Um, so this story had about maybe two or three other possible endings. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember there was one that we were leaning towards. And, you know, I, I wrote, wrote that ending. And my editors were like, you know what? And I felt strongly about it, too. We had a conversation that we wanted to make sure that we threaded in a little bit more hope. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And when I was writing this story, I didn't have my counselor head on, but when I was taking a look at it and thinking about right before it's being released, is there anything else I would change about it? I think that's when I kind of put that counselor head back on is during that revision and the editing process. Because whereas I wanted to make sure that the story was authentic, um, you know, I didn't want like any of like, you know, especially the team readers picking it up to think like, okay, here's this old woman trying to teach me a lesson. That's like my biggest pet peeve when you're writing for, um, you know, younger readers. Like you don't, you don't go in there intentionally thinking you're going to teach a lesson. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to make sure that, you know, I also kind of integrated and balanced well moments of, you know, levity. Uh, So even though the book can get dark. I wanted to also kind of show moments of, you know, Jay being joyful, Jay cracking jokes with a friend or his grandmother. I wanted to make sure that um, there were like maybe some small glimpses of silver linings. And I remember, um, cause I try not to read reviews, especially from reading. I, I feel like, you know, good reads I stay away from cause I feel like that's just the readers, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. for my own anxiety, I don't look at it, but I, I've, I've read some of the trade reviews and they've all been a positive. And I, I remember one in particular, though, said something about the lo- the lines of it was a unrealistic ending, despite the fact of the ending being unrealistic or something along those lines. And I was like, well, why couldn't it? Why couldn't it be realistic? And I think, mm-hmm. again, it's like that mindset that we're just assuming, you know, because of your skin color, because of, you know, your SES or your socioeconomic status, you're doomed to a certain fate. And, you know, to me, like, you know, I, I, I'm a success story. I know lots of success stories. I came from public housing, first of my, my family to go to college, and now I have a Ph.D. And, you know, I think only 12% of the population has, you know, has a Ph.D., and even less when you're a person of color. Um, so I know what can happen through resilience, through grit. Um, and so to me, kind of reading that, even though the, the rest of the whole review is 
you know, really great, I was just like, oh, that kind of just lets me know that you're still looking at us through a deficit lens. And mm-hmm. I don't want that to be the case anymore, you know. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're not going to give a lot, we're not going to give a lot away. And there's a teaser here mm-hmm. to delve into it, delve into this book. When you look like us, it's, it's, it, to me, the ending, you know, you've got something, it's unexpected. Um, it's mm-hmm. unexpected from, it's definitely unexpected from a certain lens. Um, and I think, okay, now here's the thing. What does it say about us? If we think it's not realistic, that's, I mean, that's where I went with that. You know, when you were saying, when you're saying that it's like, well, who's the speaker? Because, you know, you need to know that that person doesn't have a lot of hope and has faded certain character types uh, in a way that, okay, maybe the door's not open for that person to see you know, the power, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like the, you know, the LBJ administration, you know, decades back of like, well, what is the greatest threat to our security? It was the uniting of black people. Well, okay. You know, that that was actually spoken. Those words were spoken. Wow. So, and, and there was like a resonance with that uh, because there was segregation. There were all the repressive and they're not done yet. So, you know, there was all the repressive measures to make sure that black people didn't unite. And of course, this absurd, you know, replacement theory and all of the things that are still activated about having hope for blacks is just really not, you know, completely acceptable yet. It's really, I yeah. think that's real. I think that's really interesting, um, and that you carved out that ending. Uh, hey, you know, get used to it, people. Um, you're gonna also exactly. talk to us. <laughs> yeah, just get get. It's it's the new reality. Maybe it wasn't your reality, but it's the new reality. Um, you're gonna talk to us. We we've, we've got to pause for a commercial break, but you did sneakily allude to next projects, and we want to hear about those whether it's a sequel or whether you have different characters coming on board also i i really i really want to talk about something that was to me a silver lining and that is the role of education talking here with an educator Mm. herself dr pamela and harris don't go away we'll be right back on dropping in America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back with Pamela and Harris, author of When You Look Like Us. There couldn't be a more potent title. Right, Pamela, at this point in time, uh, you're talking. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's something, you know, I, I just will share an aside. I, I mean, I do know a white grandmother who's raising the two children, two young sons of her daughter who died of a drug overdose. And I feel as though when you look like us, and that us is the kids from the docks, and it's people of color, there are not as many hands reaching out to pull you up to give you mentorship, that there are just that many more obstacles, many more assumptions about, yeah, how you're going to turn out, why, mm-hmm. you might, why you might as well give up now. And I mean, I really, I, I, I think that you're, you're talking about, even through your work, creating a net creating a, a space so that, you know, kids are not going to fall through. And I wondered, you know, before we, we went to the break, we touched on the idea of education, what it means, what it could potentially mean. What is the role of education uh, in terms of rebalancing race relations, bringing kids up and influencing them? Oh, great. Um, so it's interesting. The place where I... Um, spent seven years as a school counselor with a small rural community in Virginia. Um, and of course I saw the Confederate flag a lot there. I um, had a student that always wrote KKK on his sleeve. And I had to see that student regardless because I was the only school counseling um, school counselor in the building. Um, I knew that a lot of students would come into my office to tell me some really nasty things that their parents would say about black people um, too as well. So and, and, and now I'm also in the, in the position now where I'm training individuals to kind of now go into these schools, too, as well. And one of my biggest missions has been, um, as well as a lot of my colleagues, like we first up is we want to see a lot more diversity in schools. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're making sure that we're recruiting and not just recruiting individuals of colors to join, you know, different programs in education, but also coming up with the the, you know, the training, the skills necessary to make sure that we keep them there. Mm-hmm. Because once you're in school, you know, it's great. Or once you're in an actual environment where you're one of the few people of color, okay, we have you, but then it's like we forget everything else. We're not offering that support to, you know, you know to keep you going or to keep you, you know, remaining in this area. So we're doing a lot of um, different initiatives and projects to make sure that we're finding those individuals to get into schools because, you know, all the research shows that, Students tend to do better when they see individuals like them leading a classroom or in leadership positions or in school counseling positions. And that even goes to when you, um, you're you off in college and graduate school. Like you want to see, you know, faculty people that look like you. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, we're really trying to give full force. And um, the um, mm-hmm. author, Angie Thomas, I heard her speak somewhere. And, and, of course, she's like this huge best-selling author of um, The Hate You Give. And right. which has been on the bestseller list for like a thousand years at this point. <laughs> but she, you know, mm-hmm. she's amazing. And I heard her speak and she said it really poignantly, uh, you know, regarding allies, but she would like to see um, the movement to co-conspirators. And she shared this 
incredible story, which I think, you know, I, I, it sums it up really well as to what the next step should be, where there was a, a black woman that climbed up a flagpole to take down the Confederate flag, and the police were thinking about um, using a taser to zap the flagpole, basically to, you know, send an electric shock to her and make her fall. Oh. But she had a, a, a white male friend that came with her and said, hey, if you're thinking about doing that, you're going to have to, you know, zap me first. And so he hugged the flagpole. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, he hugged the flagpole so that his, his friend could continue on her mission. And, of course, they then in turn did not decide to use the taser. And so, you know, finding more opportunities, especially in education, especially when we're mentoring our youth to kind of move to being a co-conspirator and not just saying, hey, you know what, I, I'm inclusive. I, you know, I, I try to, like, you know, make sure that yeah. I see all my students, but... We need to more than see them now. We need to really actively engage in, like, calling out behaviors that's not appropriate from our colleagues. Um, and this is going beyond even race. This is, like, you know, using heteronormative languages in the halls, too, as well, and not letting students get away for saying things like, oh, that's so gay, or, you know, like, just, you mm-hmm. know, catching people and making sure that we're creating an inclusive environment and but being active, having an active role in making sure that environment is inclusive for all of your students. So trying to find ways, how do I like use my privilege, use my, my power to um, really help make sure that other people feel safe in this environment. Mm-hmm. And you, um, I think, made a point in the book of uh, using language that was not inflammatory. It was real, very uh, authentic, but uh, not incendiary. And I like this idea of yeah, we're not just going to be allies, we're going to be co-conspirators, and maybe a body block or two would be helpful. Um, You know, it's really, you have to kind of, you know, maybe even take a bullet for somebody or just take a hit for somebody sometime because the the deck is stacked. I mean, you can come to my neighborhood and and try to take the Confederate flag down too. You know, it's it's really, it's something that uh, is audacious, so audacious in the other direction that I don't think it's going to be just a bunch of calm, considered moves. Uh, yes, we need to change laws, but yeah, there there needs to be some sort of on the ground activism um, and and education. You're now you know adding your voice as an African American author. There are going to be African American girls and boys who are going to look to you and say, "Wow, she did it!" You know, like. I can do it if she did it. Um, that adds another layer to it, right? And um, do you? How do you make yourself even more visible in that way as a role model? Oh, that's great. Um, I'm just even thinking about the landscape of even um, young adult literature now, and just thinking about how honored I would have been growing up if you know. If we have Jason Reynolds. We have. Um, Angie Thomas, who I just talked about, Nick Stone, Tiffany D. Jackson, um, JL, as you mentioned earlier, like just so many like beautiful um, voices, and not even just in the in the Black community, but we also have like these really amazing um, authors from the LGBTQIA two spectrum as well that um, are, are releasing some really magnificent work right now, and um, I'm just thinking about how this generation is so privileged in the fact that they get to like you know really have um, access to these unique perspectives. Um, but also knowing that too, um, since, you know, you're looking at the numbers, there's still a small number of us <laughs> in, in the field, mm-hmm. in the publishing field that are actually publishing stories. 
And so I do feel a certain type of responsibility about um, my public image um, because I do want to be that model. I do want to make sure that they know that um, they can achieve these dreams as well. And so I'm trying to make it my mission to reach out to more teen readers through social media. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, such, I'm, I'm still learning it myself. Like, I, I'm trying to be more active, especially on Instagram. But as soon as I got comfortable with Instagram, I realized that I'm supposed to be TikToking. And, <laughs> and I downloaded that app the other day, and I'm still, like, I'm so confused. I feel like I need to take a class, but my goal is to make sure that, um, you know, I'm visible, that they see me out there, you know, walking the walk and talking mm-hmm. the talk, and then also making myself accessible to them with, you know, certain boundaries as well for my, my family. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that's what my goal is to make sure that they see me out there um, doing the work and also um, – being involved in different organizations that reflect what I want to write about, but then also like, you know, giving them, you know, being a mentor for them too, as well, you know, giving them words of encouragement as needed, because there were times where, you know, I needed some of that and I didn't get it. Um, and unless I actively sought it out myself. Mm-hmm. Words of encouragement. I would say that's uh, deeply embedded in this book when you look like us. And I think to myself, okay, Here's you, and you might as well learn TikTok, Pam, because you've got kids coming up, and they're going to teach it to you if you don't I learn know. it yourself. <laughs> so, you know, go go for it. Um, and and I think, yeah, keep keep the voices. I think it's also at this point, keep the voices to get. You know, it's nice to see the uh, unity. I see JL supporting you, and you know, I hear you talking about Nick Stone and talking about Angie, and you know, lots of other authors that really are paving the way um you know but like to you know because to recap when you go back i can't believe you canceled somebody with kkk on their sleeve that that also you know takes a lot of a lot of courage so when you talk about encouragement i mean yes you need a lot of it just to face what you know can be going on now and you know in your book too um you know the smear campaign so Jay's sister disappears, Jay's uh, close uh, ally, also Nick, she disappears. But what happens is, you know, he, Nick, is also smeared, right, by the press because yep. why not create a story around how Nick started hanging out with the wrong kids and then therefore the victim is culpable, you know? Right, like the victim being mm-hmm. the victim, the victim, and you know the even the cops. So finally, Jay goes to the cops, and he he reaches out to an African American cop, thinking, "Okay, here's here's the man, you know, here's a man that looks like me." Well, that doesn't always work either, right? Because as you defy all the stereotypes, it works both ways, and the cop basically says, "Hey, listen, Nick is a young African American girls girl. They." disappear all the time around here in the docks. You're like, yep. holy smokes. Like, and that out of the, the mouth of an African-American police officer, I sort of didn't doubt that for a minute. And that diminishment of the value of a life, right? That's part of the reversal mm-hmm. of this. That's part of the reversal of this week. Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Because I do feel like education is the key. You know, capsule summary, 200 years ago, slavery, the most failed human experiment ever. And, 
here mm-hmm. we are, you know, without ever having provided a whole population with access to education. Now we're sort of getting it, trying to keep kids on track. What are some of your, you know, your, your parting thoughts of, you know, ways to, to speak to this issue? Uh, well, I will say, too, that that piece about Nick being smeared, it kind of came on later in the process because I was seeing that a lot myself. Like, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm older. I call them babies. Like, I'm even thinking about if these were my former students, like these horrific stories that we're seeing that's happening um, with black youth, with youth of color. And um, they're kids to me. But, you know, the way that they're painted by the media is that they're these, like, really grown thugs, like they're these monsters or are grown individuals when they're like 13, 14, 15, 16. And I'm like, I just can't wrap my head around that because there's so much brain development that's not even occurring yet for that age. You know, certain groups that we know are able to get a pat on the back or say like, oh, you made a mistake. But for people that look like me at that younger age, those mistakes are deadly and it's not fair. Um, So what I try to really, and I I actually had to remind myself this message this week and I, I, share this a lot too with some of my black students and you know black readers I want to spread that too is that saying that you know joy is the best form of resistance um you know doing the things that make you happy telling the stories you want to tell um making sure that you're having those moments of um, of laughter I, I know we experience a lot of pain but I also want to make sure that they don't take those moments of joy away from us they being like that larger system um so I think to me Joy is the best way that we can kind of like go against these the oppressors, basically. Um, and that this even remind me, I, I was um, actually going on my way to BEA before, and that was like this huge book expo, and it was my first time there. And I remember um, myself, my my cousin, and one of our best friends were so excited. We're all black females. We're on this public bus, you know, heading to BEA to meet our favorite authors and talk about our favorite books. And we were, quote, unquote, nerding out, just like, okay, you know, which, which author line we're going to get into now? And I do remember that how this white man turned around and just ridiculed us for speaking, for their oh, speaking no. on public transportation. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's yes. And it's, what okay. we did, we continued our, con- <laughs> we continued our conversation yeah. because yeah, absolutely. joy is the best form of resistance. <laughs> joy is it. It really is. We're going to look forward to a sequel. Thank you so much, Pamela and Harris. You've shed some light when we need to understand what's going on. And I feel more educated. Social media, Pam Harris writes, Instagram, Twitter, Thank you very much, Pam Harris. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and pay attention to who you might be stereotyping. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.